Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series on the book of Ruth. For more information about CBC, or how to get plugged in, or to listen to another sermon, visit us on the website, cbcsavannah.com. Father, we um, remember your grace. We remember that you are a king. Um, We have sung and rejoiced in uh, beholding the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And so we just come to your word now. And and I'm reminded as we as a nation this week, we celebrate a Memorial Day for those who have gone, who have laid down their lives, who have have sacrificed all so that we might be free. Uh, And ultimately these these point to it, who one who laid down his life so that we may be free. Um, we are thankful we live in this nation. We, our nation is, is adrift, Lord. It is, um, it is broken. Um, it is running as fast as it can seemingly away from you. And so I pray for the church, for your people to be salt and light, that we would shine and preserve and, and be different um, and not be so worried about the how bad things may get or how broken things are. We expect it, you tell us it, so we're not surprised, but we just wanna, we don't have an impact and we wanna be those who preserve and those who point people towards you and we wanna be your children living on your mission for your glory. And so uh, as dark as it gets, may we be light. Um, empower us by your spirit to do that. As we come to a new, uh, new book today, a new just portion of scripture, I pray these next five weeks would just... Speak to us, if nothing else, about your faithfulness, that we would see you as a great and big and, and magnificent God and Father. Uh, if, if nothing else, that is a great place for us to be as a church. And so use it uh, as we, as many will be in and out this summer, just protect them as they go, help us get rest, Lord. It's a good time for rest uh, and, and being with family and just strengthen us for your name's sake, I pray. I just pray for help as I always do, as I'm always needy, as I'm always broken and I just need your spirit to despite my flaws and failures to speak truth to your people in a way that equips and builds them up. So please do that uh, despite me, Lord, for your son's glory, we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. Just a couple quick things. Um, if you are a middle school parent, today is your last day for your students. So the last middle school class is today. And for the other classes, the kindergarten through fifth, it's June 12th. We, there's a kind of a, shut down on many things this summer. And so we, we do basic nurseries through the summer, four and under. So if you're a four and under, you still got a place to go. But for the summer, we love to give our teachers breaks because they work hard. And um, so they're gonna be off. So they're gonna be in here with us most of the time, which is the goal anyway for us to be in here. I'll keep my sermons shorter in the summer by 30, 40 seconds at least for you guys. Um, so they'll be good. Um, so, but some exciting things going on. There's gonna be a little bit of changes in the fall and we'll kind of introduce these things as they come as we just kind of try to refine and do a better job of what God's called us to do. So be on the lookout on a change sometimes, not for y'all because we've always changed. Like every year we're in a new building and something. So that's pretty easy for y'all, but most people don't like change, but we'll be doing some things with student ministry and things that'll be mixing it up a little bit we're excited about, so. Um, but also be thinking, if you are here and you don't have a place of service and you're like, I've been here for two years, just be praying in the next couple of weeks that God would lead you someplace. Because if he doesn't, I'm going to assign you. 
All right, just, I'm just saying, because the, ideal for, the idea for us is we have 13, 1400 folks gather on a Sunday and we have several hundred students and we got people parking, is that you would attend a service and that you would then find a place of, of service during the other service, right? That you would serve other people, whether it's coffee, whether it's hospitality. There's a huge need with children always. We need probably... 40, 50, 60 more volunteers in that ministry that we'll train up this summer. And so there's a lot of places that got some holes that we're gonna fill this summer. But just be thinking, if you're already in a place, don't join another one, all right, please. But if you're not, and you've been here for a while and you kind of, you drop your kids off in nursery and then you go off and do something and then you go on a date, second service, that's not happening next year. I'm just telling you, go on a date Sunday night, go to the nursery, second service, okay? So um, we are in a new series today. There's something about, I'm gonna move this, Blake, sorry. You're too tall. I'm going to get this out of here. Something about a great story that keeps you coming back. I mean, there's those books and there's those movies that you'll watch one time. You'll be like, that was okay. But then there's those stories that you keep coming back to. And it doesn't matter if you know what's going to happen or not. You still just love it. And there's this, it moves you. So ladies, you know, and I'm saying ladies on purpose because, you know. But ladies, you know that Miss Elizabeth Bennett is going to end up with Mr. Darcy. You know it. You know Colin Firth is gonna come around, but you watch it anyway, right? And you laugh and you're, don't do it. I'm like, oh, Darcy, you're a jar. Oh, and you get all into it. You know how it ends, but you do it again. You read it again anyway. I know Jimmy Chipwood is going to walk into that town hall meeting and say, I think it's time I start playing ball. One more thing. I play, coach stays, he goes, I go. And I'm, I'm, yes, Jimmy. And I know at the end of the game, he's gonna say, I'll make it. And I know he makes it. And I still cheer and weep. And every time, I know Luke Skywalker is going to blow up the Death Star. But I still cheer with the Rebel Alliance and my soul. Why? Because it's a great story. And there's something about great stories that keep bringing you back to them. And it doesn't matter if you know how it ends, they're just moving. We're going to spend the next five weeks in what I think is one of the top three stories in all the Bible. I don't know how I evaluate that, but I just did it. And it, this is a story, it's been called by theologians the perfect story. It's got everything. It's got tragedy. It's got conflict. It's got a little bit of love. A little Mr. Dossie in there. All right. It's got kind of a twist at the end, like a Jack Bowerish. You think it's over, but it's not over twist. It's, it's got humor, it's, it's got it all. And we're gonna, we're gonna spend time looking at it. And there's all sorts of themes. And if you read books, you know, everyone likes to have their own little idea of what the book of Ruth is. It's like how to find a husband, how to find a Moabite wife. I mean, all these different, how to be a good mother-in-law. And there's all these minor themes on God's providence and sovereignty and faith and love. And these are good, but really the book is about one thing, core. One overall thing that this book is about. It is about this Hebrew word, Hesed. It's, it, it's, it's a loaded Hebrew word. There's, in fact, all your translations, it's, it's translated differently because it's so loaded. Loving kindness, steadfast love, devotion, kindness. I mean, it's just, there's no one word that encapsulates it. It's kind of like for us on you know, Memorial Day, we could say in the word like patriotism, right? That's loaded. That means a lot of things. You think of George Washington, Declaration of Independence, Rocky IV, Rambo, patriotism, right? That's, that's my mind. You, 
but that it's a loaded for the Hebrew, the word hesed, it's, it's loaded. It is a, a faithfulness and a covenantal love. And this is a book about God's loyal, steadfast, one, one translation says stubborn, and I like that. It's a stubborn love towards his people. That's what this book is about, especially when it doesn't feel like it's there, right? And so we're gonna take a five-week journey and we're gonna study together a book about God's Hesed, the book of Ruth. Very, it's a great story, right? And, and it's written, it's one of the few books in the scripture that's actually written from a female perspective. We just did a guy, so it's only fair. We come to a girl now, right? Did Abraham, now we're going to Ruth. But it is a great story about God's faithfulness. And, and I know a lot of you, you know the book, you've read it before, right? Every single gal reads it in college Bible study or something, right? But I also know we have a lot of new Christians that have never read the Bible. And so I'm gonna say something to you that usually I don't say a bad pastor, but don't read ahead. You can, okay, you can read ahead, but don't read chapter four. There's like 65 other books in the Bible you can read this week. Read them. Because I want you to see this book with fresh eyes. Now, if you've read it before, go ahead and read the whole thing. Just don't tell the person next to you what happens. Okay? Because I want them to see the tension of this story as it unfolds. Because it's a book on God's faithfulness. But here's the, here's the twist in the story. It starts out, it doesn't feel that way. Chapter one is almost, if you didn't know any better, a chapter on how God has been unfaithful. It's almost an explanation of God's unfaithfulness. No, he's not, but it almost wants you to believe that God has not been faithful and he's not keeping his word and he's not keeping his hesed. But the beauty of the story is they set you up because at the end of it, you find out, oh yeah, this is what he was doing all along. He has always been faithful. So there's that great conflict and tension that we're going to see as we set the book up. All right. So don't read the last chapter, newbies. This is what I'm saying, all that to say. And so we're going to go on this journey together. Um, and this is not a book about how to do this or what to do when this. I know, you know, sometimes we come to a book and this is about this. And, you know, that's a lot of the New Testament epistles. When Paul is writing to the Thessalonians or the Corinthians, he's dealing with specific issues and he wants them to correct. This is not a book on how to, what to. It's really a story about God's Hesed. And so what we're gonna do is just we're gonna for five weeks talk about God's faithfulness. Now there's gonna be little pullaways and things, but if you're looking for how to, how to find a wife and how to be a good mother-in-law and how to do this and how to do that, this is not your book. But I think a good point for us, as we talk about looking up and out as a church, first worship and then we reach, the starting place is the looking up. And what I want us to see over these next five weeks is a big, faithful, truthful God who loves his people, who is stubborn in his love for his people. That you would see that. Because I know some of you are in, in places right now, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like that. And that's why the book of Ruth is so good. And so we're gonna be there. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ruth 1. If you don't know where it is, find the table of contents in the front. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in front of you. In that Bible, we're on page 222. That's pretty easy, right? 222. And I'm just today gonna introduce the book. And chapter one is really an introduction to the book. It is just kind of sets up the plot. It sets up the conflict. It sets up the main characters or two of them anyway. And, and so we're just gonna work our way through. It's almost like chapter one is 
This, you know the credits at the beginning of the Star Wars movie that kind of, nah, 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 and it tells you all the emperor's bad guy and Luke's going, that's what chapter one is. It sets the story up. You don't actually get into the heart of it yet. It's just kind of the opening deal to set you up for what's coming next. So we're gonna work through it today, kind of unpack it. And at the end, I'll come back and just highlight some things about each one of our, our main characters, okay? So let's get into the story. Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. All right, it tells you right off the bat when we're dealing with here. In the days when judges ruled. Judges is not Judge Judy. Okay, this is not Wapner here. This is a time period in Israel's history where there was no king. All right, and, and I got an old timeline from us here that we had before. All right, so here's kind of a basic timeline from the beginning of the Bible to the end, right? 2000, that was 15 when we did this originally. Um, so you have the fall. I don't know if my laser's working. It's very light. So you have the fall. You have Abraham. We just looked at him. He's about 2000 BC. Right after Abraham, you have Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Jacob goes down to Israel, I mean down to Egypt, and there's, they go down there for 400 years, and they, they come out, and there's 2 million Jews and Moses delivers them out of Egypt and you have all that stuff. The next thing after Moses wanders around the wilderness for 40 years, getting to the, to the promised land, is a guy named Joshua. And Joshua takes the, the people of Israel into Israel and for 40 years, they, they kind of conquer the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. At the end of that 40 years, he splits everybody off. He says, okay, here's what you get. Here's the land you get. Here's the land you get. Here's the land you get. Go finish the job. Live in the land. Joshua dies. Then there's no leader. You have after Joshua, this period of time called the Judges, where there's this, this pattern that you see. You can read through the book of Judges where the people of Israel fall into idolatry. They stop worshiping Yahweh. They start worshiping Baal. God does what he promised he would do when they do that. He brings them into bondage. He brings famine. He brings crop failures. All these things to get them to repent. So they, they sit in, in slavery or bondage for 20, 30 years till they finally repent. When they repent, God raises up a judge or a deliverer. Guys like Gideon and Samson. Ladies like Deborah. And they, they militarily deliver the people of Israel, and then as long as that judge lives, everything's fine, that judge dies, and they just fall into the cycle. And it's this 300-year cycle that they keep going through until finally God appoints a king because the people want a king named Saul, and then we have a guy named David, and, and, and into the kingdoms that way. So this is a dark period for the people of Israel. It's, it's summarized in the book of Judges by, there's no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. It's true for you. It's true. Sounds familiar, right? That's where they're living. And this book, the book of Ruth, takes place in those dark ages. No king. Everyone's doing what they want. Most scholars think that actually Ruth lived during, is a contemporary of Gideon, which is a real dark time. The Midianites were, were in charge of the land at that point, and they were slaves. And so you have a famine, right? Go to the next slide, Marky Mark. There you go. This thing's, battery's low. So there's a famine in the land, God's judgment on the land because they have rebelled. And in that famine, a man from Bethlehem in Judah goes down to Moab. And there's some irony here because Bethlehem, Beit House Lehem bread is the house of bread. But there is no bread 
in the house of bread. So he's got to go down to Moab, okay? Moab is not a good place. They're the enemies of Israel. They're kind of the hillbilly cousins of, of Israel, actually. They're related to Israel through Lot. Lot has an incestuous relationship with his daughter. His daughter gives birth to a son and she calls him, who's your daddy? Mo is who? Av is father. Moab is the town of who's your daddy? <laughs> so that's what, that's... That's where they go. And this is a people who worship the God called Kamash. They was child sacrifice. When the, when the Jew hears that they leave the land of bread and go to the land of who's your daddy, there's immediately like a, whoa, this is not good. We've seen from Abraham, it's not good to leave the land. Okay, it's, it's worse to go to Moab where they worship a false God. Okay, it's just, it's not good, right? These are not the allies. Here's where Moab is. Right here, okay, so they're in Bethlehem. They're going down to Moab, which is about 50 miles. It's not far, which by the way, shows you that the judgment of God is very specialized on the people of Israel because 50 miles away, there's no famine. But in Israel, there is, why? Because they've rebelled against God. So here's this guy, he leaves his, his, the land of bread, goes to the land of who's your daddy. And then verse two, we're introduced to who he is. And remember, names mean something for these people. For us, it's like, your name's Bubba, just because you're from the South. For them, names mean something. All right, so the name of the man was Elimelech. His name means my God is king, all right? Which is ironic because he's not trusting in God as his king, so he's leaving the land of bread to go into the land of who's your daddy. His wife's name is Naomi, which means pleasant. So you have like this couple made in heaven, pleasant and God is my king. They should be leading a community group somewhere, right? And, there's, and their kids' names are Malon and Kilion. Their names mean frail and sick, Okay, you see where this is going. And they're Ephraites, which is an old name for Bethlehem, of Bethlehem. And they went in the country of Moab and they remained there. So God is my king, pleasant, sick and frail, leave the land of bread to go to the land of who's your daddy. Verse three, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi dies and she's left alone. So you have this single mom, all right? It's famine back there, and now it's famine here. She loses her husband. And now the narrative from the rest of the book switches to a female perspective. In verse one and two, Naomi was the wife of Elimelech. Now she, I mean, now he is the husband of her. The focus is on her now. She's the central point of the story, right? And she is now a widow. She is now away from family. She is away from friends. She has this huge tragedy. But at least she's got her boys, right? At least she's got her son still. Sons were future, sons were protection, sons were, were provision. So she's got a future still. And so in verse four, these two boys, sickly and frail, took Moabite wives, which was not, they, you were allowed to do it, but it wasn't good. They were like, it was kind of an iffy deal for the Jew. All right, it wasn't a Canaanite because they're related, but you're like, now Moabite people could not go into the tabernacle. They couldn't worship like the Jew. So there's gonna be many limitations on these people. They can't get this close. They can't do all these things, but they marry him. One's name is Orpah and the other's name is Ruth. And they live there for 10 years. And then sickly and frail die, right? So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Now remember, she's got no husband, she's got no sons. What else does she not have? She has no grandsons. All right, she is destitute. This is a family in crisis. One of the oldest clans in Israel is now on the verge of extinction. 
But for a woman who's not even in her country, by the way, a woman in that culture, a mom, her whole identity was her family. Okay, she couldn't just go out and, oh, you know, I'm a single mom, I'm gonna go out and get a job. That, that didn't exist then. Your whole security, your whole life was tied up in having sons that could provide for you. And even today, there's this bond between moms and sons in the Middle East that we love our boys here, but there's just something beyond culturally over there. In fact, there was a study I read this week. They asked American men, all right, American men, your mama, your wife, and your daughter are in a boat and it's sinking and you can only save one of them. Who do you save? 60% save their daughter, 40% save their wife, mama go down. (laughs) Bye mama. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. They interviewed men from Saudi Arabia. Same question. 100% of them save their mama. 100%. That's the culture. So what I want you to see is the tie between a son and the mama was like, daughters are gonna get married. My wife, I got seven of those anyway, but that's my mama. That, that's the culture. So here's a woman who lo- le- loses everything. She's lost her husband, but now she has lost her sons. And for her perspective, her life is over. Famine in the house of bread. My God is king is dead. Pleasant has lost everything. And she's living in the land of who's your daddy? It's not a good place. And so she is left asking, where is Yahweh? Where's God? You talk about God's faithfulness. You talk about God's love, his steadfast love towards me. Where is the Hesed? The last thing in her mind is Hesed. If things could get worse, she cannot fathom how. There is no Hesed for her. That's where she's living. So verse six, she arises with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? She heard that the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people. The famine is over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And on the way, this 50 mile journey, they stop at some point and Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and says, go return each of you to your mama's house. May the Lord deal kindly. That word kindly is the Hebrew word hesed. May God treat you with Hesed as you have treated me and the dead with Hesed. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of your husband. And she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they have a good cry, right? But she says, look, my life is done is what she's saying. You guys can still go home. You still can get married. You can still have kids. You've been kind to me. You've been devoted to me. May God bless you. Go home. Go home, ladies. I got, I got nothing to offer you. And they say, no way, we're with you. They cry and they say, no, we'll return with you to you and your people. And so she doubles up. She says, you're not getting what I'm saying here. Turn back, my daughters. Why go with me? What, what do I have? And she, she introduces this hypothetical. Have I sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I'm not pregnant. 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And, and if I should have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight, say I get married today, say I, start, I get pregnant tonight, and say I have a son in nine months and, and should bear sons, are you going to wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? That'd be weird anyway. They'll be 14. You'll be like 40. That'd be weird. No, my daughters, for it is, new word here, exceedingly bitter to me. I am bitter. Like, and you guys are a little bitter because you've lost husbands. I've lost everything. Husbands, sons, no grandsons. And why I have, because the Lord is against me. God hates me. Right? And she introduces us this idea, and we're gonna come back to this in the next couple of weeks, of leverite marriage, fancy word. But in that culture, if a brother died and he didn't have an heir, then his brother would have to, in essence, marry his sister-in-law to raise up an heir for the son. And they introduced that idea. That's what she's saying. Well, you're gonna wait for, for Malon and Kilion's brothers to be born, even though it's physically impossible? No. And, and it's introduced because it's gonna come out later. We're gonna see it. It's foreshadowing. But what she's saying is, I got nothing. Go home. Go home. Right? And they have, again, this is a female perspective. They have another good cry in the desert. And then, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah goes home, but Ruth sticks around. And Naomi's like, look, she's, she is not done trying to get these girls to go home. She says, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. She's saying, follow her. Look, where I am going, Ruth, you have no hope. You are a Moabite. They will not like you. You look different. You talk different. You can't worship the same. It, there is nothing for you. you. You are done there. Follow her. And notice what she says. Go back to her people and to her gods. This is how bad of way she's in right now. She is actually telling her, go back to Kamash. Because Yahweh, not, not, a good, not been good to me. Can you imagine as a Christian saying, you know what, you tried Jesus, it didn't work out, go to Buddha, see what happens. That's where she's at. That's how broken she is. Go back, go back. And here's Ruth. Uh, Ruth, she is an extraordinary woman. She says, she commands her mother-in-law. Some, some of you daughter-in-laws have done this, right? You've, you've commanded your mother-in-law. She says, stop. Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And in this famous line, it's read at all these weddings and it's great to read at weddings. There's nothing wrong with it, but it has nothing to do with man and woman. It's daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, right? So if you want to read this at your wedding, turn to your mother-in-law and say, we're, you know, you can turn to her. It'd be really weird, but you can do it. Um, she says, where you go, I will go. It's very poetic. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And where you die, I will die and I will be buried. And then she introduces this covenant language. And if not, if, if that doesn't happen, may Yahweh do to me and more also if anything but death parts us. I, I mean, this is extraordinary. This is radical for that culture because your identity was in your ethnicity. And what she is saying is, I am no longer a Moabite. I am no longer a worshiper of Kamash. I am, a, I am like you. And wherever you go, whatever the cost, I will be there. And I'm not just gonna like hang out with you until you die and, and then I go back to my family. I am going to be here. I am now one of you, Naomi. 
your God is my God. She is the model of Hesed. She is the model of, of stubborn, immovable love in this book. She's the picture of Christ. This nobody from the land of who's your daddy is the model of Jesus in this story. And so when Naomi realizes how determined, this, the Hebrew word for determined is, is a, it's a military word for strength. When she sees she is strong and she's not going anywhere, she says nothing else. Good, good lesson for mother-in-laws. When your daughter-in-law is strong, just say nothing else, all right? Just take the grandkids and go. So they get back. Verse 19, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Remember, Bethlehem is not a big city. This is not New York City. It's a small town, so everyone knows everybody. And the whole town is stirred when they show up. And the, woman, and the women of the town say, is this Naomi? And the idea is, that lady looks rough. It looks like Naomi, but I remember Naomi was pleasant. And that woman looks like something else. She don't look pleasant. And so they go up to her, right? You can imagine, Naomi, how you been? Naomi, how you been? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitter with me. Naomi, how's Moab? How you doing? Horrible. Get on my face. Naomi, how's the fam? Terrible. They're dead. Call me bitter. She thinks she's getting a lot of invites over, right? Could you serve in a nursery, Naomi, please? She is a bitter woman, right? She is bitter. And by the way, this is foreshadowing another woman from Bethlehem who lost a son, whose name is from the same root word, Mara, Mary, whose soul would be pierced because she would look upon her son. It's not by accident, but she is a bitter woman, right? And look why she says she's bitter. Look at the why. For the almighty, underline the word almighty if you have a pen and you're an underlined person. This is the Hebrew word Shaddai. You know, remember the old Grant, El Shaddai. That's Amy Grant for you, right? It's this idea of God who is sovereign. She blamed She's blaming God. I am bitter. Why? Because the sovereign God has dealt bitter with me. I went away full. I had dreams. We had hopes. We had kids. I had a husband. Everything was good. I am empty. So why do you want to call me pleasant when Yahweh has testified against me and the Shaddai, the sovereign one, has brought this calamity on me? Ouch. And she has this, this, this tension. She's doing the math in her head. Okay, if God is good and God is sovereign and God is all powerful and my life stinks, then, what, then he must be the source and the cause of my pain. That he is actually causing this. He's the one who killed my kids. He is the one who took away my husband. He is the one who is doing this, the Shaddai. And it's this you see this in the church a little bit, and I call it cruel Calvinism, where these people, that God is the source of your pain. He is the source of your struggle. He's, a, he's, he's like, he's spiteful and you mess up and he's there to smack you down. That's her view of God at this point. And look, I'm not being hard on her because I would be mad. Call me bitter Bill if I'm her. You take away my family, 
I'm starving. I have no hope. We, we, get, we were hard on Naomi. Everyone's like, oh, Naomi's so bad, bitter woman. Uh. You know what? Naomi is actually a model of Hesed in this story. You know why? Because she is willing to give up all she has, her daughters-in-law, so that their life might be good, even though hers is gonna be stinky. That's Hesed. And she's bitter, but some of y'all are bitter just because the Braves stink. And they do. She's lost everything. So let's not be so harsh on old girl, right? She, but the, the point is this, if you, if we would say, well, maybe God is against her. It really seems like God is against her. It really seems like God has left her, right? Hesed seems to be absent from this girl's life. And that's the whole beauty of this story. You're supposed to feel that tension, but you're also supposed to see a glimmer of hope at the end of the chapter. And this glimmer is gonna be unpacked in our weeks ahead. And here's the glimmer, verse 22. This is where you're, you're a little bit of spark of hope because her life stinks, but it, there's a hope that it might change. So, and it's very redundant here. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. We know that. We've just been reading that, right? So why is it redundant and, and mentioning it? Yeah, Ruth came back and the Moabite. And why does it tell us the same stuff we already know? Because it's highlighting something for us to see that Naomi doesn't see right now because she thinks everything's empty. But all she has to do is look to her left and see God's hesed standing next to her. Now she doesn't get it yet. She doesn't see it yet. But she thinks she's empty and she has a, a diamond in the rough standing right next to her. She can't even see it right now. But she will. Take a couple chapters. But this is the proof for her that God has not abandoned her. Because he's going to do something marvelous in this. And there's a second proof and a second kind of glimmer of hope in this verse. It says they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It just so happens that in God's providence, which we'll see a lot of providence in this, in this book, that they come back at the barley harvest. So what significance is that? The barley harvest is the very first crop in the, in the, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish agrarian culture. It's the crop that was sown during the dryness of winter. They sow during the winter months, and it's the very first thing to come through that dry, wintry, dead ground, barley. It, it, and it seems like everything is dead during winter, doesn't it? But this is the first crop of harvest. And it's this little hint that everything's been dead in her life. Everything's been dry in her life. It seems hopeless in her life, but there's a sprout coming that's going to be a harvest. And here's what's significant even more so for us living 3,000 years later. Do you know what? happens in this barley harvest time. You know what feast is celebrated in, in, uh, in kind of connection with the barley harvest is the feast of the first fruits for the, for the nation of Israel. You know what happens on the feast of the first fruits in about 32 AD? A certain tomb is empty, right? The certain savior comes out of the ground on the day of first fruits. And all this coincides with what happened on Friday with Passover and hopelessness and death and, and, and sorrow is boom, now new. That's, that's what's going on here at the end. And the writer is kind of giving you a, just a taste of what's coming. There's, there's, some, there's some fruit coming. There's a harvest coming. Something is great is coming. You're not going to get there for a couple chapters and there's going to be some up and down, but we're going to get there. Why? Because God has not abandoned her. 
he's doing something more wonderful than she can fathom. And we're gonna see it unpacked in a couple weeks. Let me just highlight real quick, just a couple things about our two main players. We could talk Elimelech, but he's gone. Who's your daddy? You know, took him out. Um, and, and frail and, and, and uh, sickly, they're gone. Let me talk about these two main characters. We're gonna see one more main character introduced next week, but just to highlight some things. Again, this is not a how-to or a what, you know, it's not the point, but I do wanna highlight some things that stand out that I think are awesome about Naomi and Ruth. Let's talk Naomi real quick. A couple positives, one negative. Here's a positive. I love the honesty of Naomi. I mean, she may be wrong about some of her conclusions, but she is honest. You know what she's thinking. Old girl is raw and she's right there. And we can learn a lot from the honesty and the transparency of this woman who is broken. She could have come back to Bethlehem. Everything's great. Praise the Lord. I can't sleep and can't eat and everyone's dead. Hallelujah. But she would have been a fraud. She, she is honest about where God has her. And, and she is pretty honest to God, isn't he? She, this is God's fault. He is the sovereign one. He is doing this to me. Here's what you need to know. God is big enough to carry your doubts. Because some of you are at a place in your life you're thinking, yeah, we keep talking about God's love and enjoy life and all these things. I don't feel it. And, and you wouldn't say that out loud because you would be scared that maybe God would think that. Let me just kind of clue you in. He knows you're thinking that. And it's okay. In fact, there's chapters of scripture that are actually doubting. There are chapters where people are crying out and doubting God's presence, okay? So if he puts it in the Bible, he gets it. But what, what I would say to you is we need to be more transparent as a people. Stop playing this Southern Christian, everything's fine game. Because what you do when you play that game is you encourage others who are truly broken to play the same game and they're never gonna find healing and they're never gonna find hope if they think all of you are perfect. Because let me, let me just clue you in as, as your pastor. Things are a lot worse than you even know. I mean, everyone, oh, everybody's got great marriages and great kids. Let me just tell you, there's brokenness galore. There just is. And you need to be okay with that. Not only because because you're broken, but because you need to not be encouraging other people to put fake fraudulent faces on when they come here. And you need to not be shocked when the, when the sinners come here. Some of you are so shocked. Oh, I can't believe they're at church. Why? You're here. <laughs> if we are the church that gets shocked because sinful people that smell like River Street come into church, if, if that offends you, please, you are in the wrong church. Because that's the person we want. Eventually, they'll put on obsession for men and stop putting on River Street. But right now, that's where they're at. They're River Street. They're gonna dress like River Street. They're gonna act like River Street. That's what we want. Jesus came for the River Street, okay? And so we cannot be shocked. You can't be shocked when your teenagers tell you what's going on in their school. Yes, in their Christian school. If you're, if, oh, I can't believe that's going on. You, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. Because if they're telling you that, it's a great thing. If they're honest about that, that's what you want. Teenagers, you need to be open and honest with your parents about what's going on, what your struggles are. And parents, when they tell you, do not pass out. Just, oh my, yeah, I know it was like that when I was there. You can go in the room afterwards, but like, oh my. <laughs> you can do that later. But we need to be, your community groups need to be honest. This is why we have them. 
We just wanna be open and transparent. Jesus already knows. And this is gonna be huge for us looking up, looking out, all right? And so I love her honesty. I love that when she is broken, where does she go? The only place she can, back to God and his people. Hey, isn't that what we do? That's, when people come in here, we're gonna point them to God, we're gonna point them to his people. That's, that's what we do. She goes back, love it, all right? Great example. She's a, I told you already, she's a model of Hesed. She gives of everything she's got, she gives to these, these daughter-in-laws, right? Negatively, here's, the, here's what we wanna take away, is she's a bitter woman. And some of you, if you're honest, you are bitter Christians. And, and bitterness, we've talked a lot about it, but kind of two main sources of bitterness. Number one is this, is unmet expectations. Like you expect this, this is what you get, and this tension in between is, causes bitterness. And it could be, you know, someone passes away unexpectedly, lost a job, failed business, got kicked out of, got cut from the team. It could be all these things. And this right here, that tension, this is what I expected. This is what I got. And, and there's bitterness. Why me? Why now? Why not them? All right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a bad deal. And you say, well, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for this when I became a Christian. You kind of did. Because Jesus says, you want to come after me? You take up your cross, your instrument of Roman murder, and follow me. So when you did follow Jesus, you kind of did sign up for, maybe stuff will not go perfectly. But that's okay. And, and I'm not, there's no quick fix for bitterness, just so you know. If you're looking for three ways to get out of bitterness, there's no, there is none. The solution is moving back towards God and his people. The solution is seeing a book like this and seeing what God is doing despite the tragedy and, and getting back from it a little bit and seeing and say, oh, okay, I can see the trajectory in which God's moving. We can't move people quickly out of bitterness into, oh, happy, happy. It just doesn't happen. But you need to understand a lot of it is rooted in unmet expectations. And secondly, a lot of it is rooted in an entitlement. I, I deserve this, I got this. I do my quiet time. I tithe, me and my wife go to church, we're in a community group, we're serving in this. Why is our kid sick? Why did I lose my job? It's not fair. There's a whole book of the Bible written to, about the most righteous guy who lived at his time and he loses everything and he brings those arguments to God. It's not fair, it's not fair, I'm the good guy. And God says, who are you again? It's called the book of Job. Right, and so really, this idea of entitlement, what do you really deserve? You deserve wrath. You don't get wrath as a Christian. And so everything else is gravy train. You get love and you get a future and you get a hope. So anything here, as good or bad as it may be, is nothing compared to what we should get. And you have a God who understands more than you know this idea of what I deserve and what I get. I mean, he's on the cross and he says to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the only person who ever lived that has a right to say that because he's the only person that didn't deserve to be forsaken. He was righteous, but he enters into that for us and he is rejected. The father turns his back on his son why? So that he will never turn his back on you. So even in the middle of tragedy and, and hardship, we know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not tragedy, not turmoil, not death, nothing. Why? Because God rejected his son so that he would never reject us. And, and that's the, it's a tension and you're like, well, if God didn't reject me, the wise life stink. Well, that's just what we work through. 
But understand that because of what Christ did, he is never leaving you. He is never forsaking you. And he understands. So we're gonna look at Naomi and how she goes from bitterness to joy. And then there's Ruth. And then Ruth was the model of, of Hesed. Ruth is the model of a lot of things. Here's what I love about Ruth. Many things, but she responds to truth in a way that I, I, I just can't understand. I can't fathom it. I would venture to say that her faith is greater than that of the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham has God show up and talk to him multiple times. What does Ruth have? There's no Moabite ESV. She has no revelation. All she has is a mother and father-in-law who have not been great examples. Sickly husband. What does she have compared to all the others? And she steps out and makes a commitment that really costs her everything. What is she looking at? Being a widow, taking care of her mother-in-law, being poor, hunger, loneliness. And she responds to the little truth about Yahweh that she knows. That is amazing. And it's just, it's just a reminder for us. There are gonna be times in your life where you don't have the big picture, but you have just a little bit of truth and God wants you to respond to that little bit of truth. And you're gonna feel like you're walking into the fog and you don't know where you're going, but that's actually a good place for you. Because if you knew where you're going, if you had this job or this degree or this, this relationship, you would end up trusting in that little thing, that bank account, instead of the one who is leading you through the fog. So she's in a good place. And I would suggest that there's some, some of these happen in your life, maybe in a big way, four or five times, maybe. I mean, for us, the, the one that can continually come back to is, is going to seminary. Two kids under two, no money, moving across the country, no friends, no church, no job. That's a fog. Not like in school, didn't like it in kindergarten, didn't like it in undergrad, never liked it, except for PE. Going to write papers, no joy there. And let me tell you, it was worse than I thought it would be. It was, it was great. Seminary experience, great. Seminary itself, horrible. Horrible. I'm still ADD and I can't sit through a class. I'm eight hours a day in a class going, back playing spider solitaire. All right? But I look back and say, oh, that's what you were doing. It was a fog at times, it was dry at times. You don't know where you're headed at times but you know the one who is leading. And that's Ruth. And we're gonna see this unpack. She's constantly gonna step out in faith and just do the next thing. And God is gonna go, boop, right to Boaz. It's a beautiful. And, and that's what I want us to be. But it starts looking up at a great big God who demonstrates his hesed towards us. And so we're gonna celebrate that. We're gonna celebrate the table. The table for us is proof of God's hesed. It's not a fog of anything forward, it's something back. We look back to something that, that happened, that occurred on a Friday where, where a Messiah was crucified, he was put in the grave and he was rose, rose again. And we look back to that as God's demonstration of his love towards us. That is proof of covenant, faithful, stubborn love. And so we're gonna celebrate. If you're a Christian this morning, we invite you to celebrate with us. And here's how it's gonna work. Uh, Blake, you and your team can come on up and lead us. They're gonna hand out the elements and you just after some time of reflection, maybe some time of confession, just meditating on the sacrifice of Christ, that you would take it in your own time. All right, so a couple minutes of just reflection after these guys hand it out, that you would take it and then you would stand and we would just worship. 
that you would worship. And if you're in a, some of you are in a great place. School's out, just graduated. Some of you are in a place where you doubt God's hesed. Think of the cross right now. And we'll work through this in the next couple of weeks. And my goal is to point you towards God's hesed. But just take a small step right now in remembering the love of God in Christ. Let's pray and we'll worship. Father, as we sing, as we take of your, of your table, um, be glorified and be exalted. I ask for um, those who need comfort that this would be a story of redemption for them. That they would see how Ruth is redeemed, Naomi is redeemed, how you have done great things and that you would... Uh, Just be honored for your faithfulness to us. It's in Christ's name I pray.